Welcome to the Be Free RE podcast, where you learn how to make your job optional. I'm your host, John, who's just getting started on his journey. But in the last year, I moved across the country, bought four apartments, make money as a landlord, no longer pay rent, and I have my first child. I'm joined by your co-host and my guide, Tony Angotti, who in five years quit his job and now manages over 80 units through a combination of house hacks, flips, and partnerships. So with that, let's jump into how you can do less of what you have to do and more of what you want to do. Tony, welcome to another episode. How you doing? I'm doing great. You caught me mid-yawn. I was like trying to <laughs> yawn. So fill some space. I'm going to complete the yawn and then we can get on with this. <laughs> okay. I'll wait. My feelings won't be hurt. I'm good. Oh, that's good. So what's up? Oh boy, what is up, man? We have a new kitchen. That's how I spent my 4th of July. So pretty fun. We, Did uh, it yourself? Uh, yeah, everything except when I finished the shutoff valves were still dripping. So I had to, had to call the plumber. So, ah oh, man, yeah. did you take before and after pictures to document this for your future self? There's like a during and an after. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're horrible at that too. Yeah. I, uh, I should probably start recording those for some sort of Instagram thing. I've seen people like do those quick videos where they record it and uh. it, they put it in like fast time and they're pretty cool to watch. But for me, you would just watch like me do something. I'd smash my hand with a hammer. I would swear a lot and throw stuff across the room. And then I would, you would see me like take the thing and into my car driving to Home Depot. And you would see that same thing happen like six times because I never get what I need up front. Yeah, I just budget uh, like one trip in the morning and one trip at the end of the day in every day that I'm working. And uh, we have liquid bandage in the house. So yeah, cut myself pretty good and deep on both my index fingers. <laughs> Perfect. That's yeah. perfect. Yeah, tons of fun. So, uh, yeah, so what do we have lined up for today? All right. Today's actually a question from Steve about lease options. Then we have Kathy calling in about sourcing off-market deals. And then we're going to jump into the mailbag. Uh, and we'll get to a question. I think probably the best question is uh, someone who has high income but bad credit. Okay. Three questions. Ambitious for the day. Hey, man. Let's get on. Yeah, I'm full of it. What can I say? All right, well, let's jump over to Steve. Uh, this is Steve from Pittsburgh. I am looking to do some lease option deals, and I'm trying to find out a little bit more information about it. Is this something you can explain a little bit so I can, uh, can have a better understanding? Yeah, so the first thing with the lease options is that the basics of it are basically you provide a lease to the tenant and you give them the option to purchase the property. Depending on your contract, the option could be during the contract, at the end of the contract, whatever you set it up. So the most important thing with the lease options is to consult an attorney to set up this contract for you, whatever it is. I'm not an expert. I don't personally do these. I'm just familiar from being around other investors. But from what I understand, the benefit to this is that as an investor, usually you're giving this property to someone um, and you don't have as much responsibility as far as maintaining the property, paying any of the bills, that sort of thing. That falls on the tenant as dictated by the contract, but you're also still collecting monthly income from the property and eventually you will sell the property. A lot of times in regular real estate, this is done as sort of a temporary thing 
where somebody might not have the money to buy a house, but they've reached an agreement with a seller. So while they're saving up money, they'll have a lease and pay monthly um, until they exercise their option. The negative as the seller of the property is that you're not allowed to sell to another person while this contract is holding up your property, usually. So that's kind of a negative. Um, as a tenant, this can be a good situation too, where if you're the one buying the property as a lease option, it can be a good situation if maybe your credit is bad or you don't have a lot of money or something like that. So if you're looking to get into real estate, sometimes people use this as kind of a arbitrage way to get in. So they'll lease option the property from a property owner and then they'll sublease it to a tenant, whether it's like Airbnb or um, anything like that. So it's a way of just getting control of the property without having to actually buy the property. So those are some of the basics. I am not the right person to talk to as far as expertise in this field. I just, to be honest, don't have it. I just know enough to kind of have it as a tool if I ever run into it. And then I know enough to just consult an attorney and say, hey, how should we draw this up? Um, mm. But those are the basics of it. A lot of times, like I said, people do this to buy properties when they maybe don't have a lot of money or they have bad credit or something. And the benefit of selling a property lease option is that you can collect money and not really have any of the day-to-day -day responsibilities of being a property owner. Mm. So that's a lot of it. I'm sure there's other people out there that know a lot more. Do you have anything to add? No, I, I haven't done this. Uh, I would just say in terms of uh, the one resource I've discovered that does uh, often talk about lease options and how to use them uh, is Chad Carson. Uh, he goes by Coach Carson on the internet. And he has, if you just Google Coach Carson uh, lease option, he's got like five or 10 YouTube videos about using lease options. So uh, some, some more details since we're not getting into the nitty gritty here. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Well, sorry we're not more help, but there you go. You asked for background and you got it, Steve. So You got very, uh, I could have Googled this and found that information. <laughs> that, was your, yeah. uh, that was your answer. Sorry, I don't have more personal experience with it. But just because we've moved more into commercial type deals, this isn't something that I experience that often. I feel like it's more common in kind of the single family motivated seller type space area. And also when people are trying to sell single family homes to people who might not have the best credit or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's jump into our next question about, uh, off market deals. Hi guys, this is Kathy from Pittsburgh. Uh, so my husband and I, we bought a duplex off the MLS. It's some, a deal that our realtor led us onto and it was great. Um, but we're more and more interested in looking into off market deals. So my question is how, and, uh, how should we go about doing that? And uh, where do you think we should start? Thanks. Yeah, John, do you have any insight on this before I blabber? Mm, yeah, I mean, this is something we've been looking into a little bit on our side as well. It's not something I've actually spent a lot of time on, but uh, I do know that there's like a ton of technology now available for you in terms of mailers, you know, getting, uh, getting addresses. Like uh, there's some app you can take a picture of the person's house and it'll I don't know if it's like actually AI or if it's like you know little hamsters on wheels that go figure out who the what the property is and try and get you uh, the, the right contact info so I uh, don't have a lot of personal experience in this but uh, I do know my my wife does bookkeeping and she sees a whole bunch of marketing expense 
for people that do this kind of stuff. It's probably the hamsters. That's <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's probably the or possums. This show's big with possums. Yeah. So I, we need to redo but, our logo and have it be a possum some somehow. Yeah, with a tail and a circle. Um, yeah. So the thing with when people come to me and they ask about like I want off market deals, the thing that's difficult about it is that to get really at what people are asking is like how do I get good deals with better numbers. They don't really care if it's on market or off market. It's just how do I find better deals? And the difficult thing is that even with a lot of stuff that's technically off market, like through a wholesaler or even a pocket listing from an agent or whatever, when you're in a seller's market like we are now, those deals just don't have as much meat on the bone. So it's still, even though it's off market, you still fall into the whole category of you're not just going to have a deal fall onto your lap. You need to make deals good deals. So you basically just need to find what your competitive advantage is and use that effectively. Mm. Um, That's different for everyone. So some people, they're going to send out a whole big mail campaign. They're going to send out the hamsters on wheels. They're going to do call tracing, everything like that. And that's a lot of money spent, a lot of um, a lot of energy, a lot of lead generation, all that kind of thing. And if you're only looking for one property, that's a lot of effort put into a campaign that's really only trying to generate one or two properties. So it might not be worth it. However, at the same time, I tell people, you really need to be self-sourcing your deals the way that the seller's market is right now. If you want some of the stuff that people talk about that like because every time you go on the internet you hear about certain property like deals like people's deals and everybody's only going to talk about their best deals so if you want those best deals you generally need to self-source them find them yourselves um some of the ways to do that like we talked about mail and you can definitely pay somebody you can pull lists of properties with high equity owners all that stuff um what my wife and i did was we uh actually just hand wrote a letter um and we left blanks where the seller's name was and where the property address was. And we would just go around our neighborhood and find properties that looked like they made sense. Basically walk for dollars. Like there's a driving for dollars yeah, thing. Yeah. I think that when I think that when you're only looking for one or two properties, this method kind of works the best for people. Um, because it's not as money intensive and as much of a shotgun approach. And we just send people letters and it was handwritten, but we left those blanks because I scanned them on a, I copied them on a high quality copier and I just wrote in to match the printing, the printed out thing, the address and the name. And I hand addressed the let the um, front of the letter. And then we would do like 10 of those a day and just send out 10 of them a day. Um, we ended up getting a good bit of responses that if we would have continued a follow-up campaign it may have worked out because follow-up is key with these sorts of leads a lot of people aren't ready to sell now but they will sell eventually Mm. um and for me as a realtor those leads are useful because i could convert them um but the thing with our mailing campaigns is that because everything was handwritten and we just had a little bit of time i think our i actually keep it at my desk I got a letter from one of them back, a Christmas card, actually, (laughs) that says, we were surprised to receive your letter about our house. At this time, we intend to live here for the foreseeable future and have no intention of moving or selling. Also, we have never rented the upstairs unit to anyone in the past 20 years, but have occupied it as part of our home. So we are not landlords. 
Happy to respond to your inquiry because it was well thought out and very polite. We wish you a happy 2018. Thank you for your inquiry. And then they signed their name and they said, happy holidays. And if we ever are thinking, we'll reach out. Wow. So like, and I mean, our listeners can't see, but like, it's a legit like Christmas card, like a hand, a hand drawn Christmas card. Um, so they may have just had extra Christmas cards. That's uh, not beyond me. But the point is that a well thought out campaign like that, or not even well thought out, but just more manual campaign actually elicits responses. And that's one way that you can stand out from all the people that are sending yellow letters and all that kind of thing. You're not going to get hundreds of leads that way. Like you're not going to get, you know, a whole ton of deals. But if you're only looking for one place or something like that, that kind of campaign can be pretty effective. Additionally, it depends on your customer. So like the kind of customers that I think Kathy's talking about, um, things that they're looking to buy, it sounds like it's kind of a smaller property because um, she mentioned like a duplex. So what I mentioned kind of makes sense for those kind of people because they're usually just individuals that are going to respond to you like they, they like that personal touch. But with our commercial mailing campaigns, it's a lot more professional. Like it's a, it's a typed up letter signed on the bottom on letterhead. We still hand write or we hand sticker their stickers on the mailings. They look official. And then we have the title at the bottom for the one guy who hands a director of acquisitions. It takes you to the website. Our website looks very professional. Um, it has, we keep track of all of our debt partners, what companies they work for. So we, on our website, it says like our investors are from, blah, 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 blah. And it's like has a list of all the companies of the people that we've worked with. So it makes us look very official. Um, and that resonates well with our customer base. So really, however, you're going to do your direct mail campaign or your reach out campaign or whatever, you just need to think about who you're sending it to. Um, just sales in general. So that's important. Plenty of other ways too. you can door knock and all that kind of stuff. But to be honest, the most effective way that I have found um, to find off-market leads is to literally just tell everyone that you know that this is what you're doing now. I have had more leads come from just uh, people I used to work with, friends, whoever, and just because they know that this is what I do, I'll have people reach out to me and say, hey, my so-and-so is thinking about selling their building and I'll say, oh, do they have it listed yet? And they're like, no. And I'm like, okay, well, maybe I'll talk to them. And we picked up at least three of our apartment buildings that way, just people that I knew. They just know that I do this. So they approached me and said, hey, I know somebody who's doing it. And that whole just not in, in real estate sales, they say, don't be a secret agent. Don't tell, like, <laughs> don't just not tell people that you're a real estate agent. You have to tell everybody that you're a real estate agent. And it's the same thing for investing. Like, don't be a secret investor. Let everybody know that this is what you're doing. All right. That's a lot of information. Do you have any comments on any of that? No, I think to recap, it was something like know your customer. So it sounds like on the commercial side, very professional image. We have the money to execute. You know, we mean what we say. And then sort of on the more uh, walking for dollars side, it's much more of like, you know, high touch, white glove sort of, uh, well, I guess not white glove, but you know, 
personable. Uh, yeah. Maybe not send them a Christmas card, but <laughs> handwritten. <laughs> well, that was back from one of the sellers. I know. It was I know. crazy. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's I pretty wild. Well, not a seller, to be very specific. But yeah. yeah. And, I, and I keep it. Well, yeah. I mean, one day they'll sell. Um, I, but I keep it at my desk just to remind myself, like, sending it out gets to people. Yeah. Like that kind because of, most of those letters, like yellow letters and stuff at this point, they're inundated and they just throw all that stuff away. So yeah. however you can stand out from that to not get thrown away is what's going to win. And in a individual seller way, like a homeowner, that's usually going to be a handwritten letter because who just throws away a handwritten letter? Like you open it and you look at it. If the address is handwritten, you're going to open it. Um, almost guaranteed. But if it's like a postcard that says, hey, looking to buy your house, like one in 3,000 people are going to call you. One in 2,000 people, something like that. And then the other part of that mass mailer thing is just that a lot of people are obsessed with the list. Like, what list should I pull? What list should I pull? And then they Google it, and then everybody pulls the same list. Yeah. And the people who are doing a lot of volume in that space all have almost like a either they really spend a ton of money or they have like a special list and nobody's going to tell you what their list is yeah. because that's their, that's their gold. So yeah, that is what it is. Yeah. I mean, so I, I do have direct mail experience in other businesses and that's absolutely true. Like, you know, one is basically anything you're doing at like large scale is less successful than small scale. Right. So you want to start, find like a good strategy and then scale it out if it meets your business goals. And then in terms of like, you do have to find kind of this magical list because uh, otherwise you're getting the same list that everyone else is doing, especially in a business like this where I feel like there's just more and more. And in general, I'm deeply suspicious of almost all marketing technology because the key, you know, like technology's job is to do the same thing over and over again. And uh, mm -hmm. that means anyone with like $5 in their pocket can essentially do the same marketing that you're trying to do so it, it just it requires i think you said what is your competitive advantage but it, you know it requires some unique idea whether that's you know walking and handwriting whether that's you know having a, a different professional presentation or you know you know you know whatever this uh this one specific area is like underdeveloped and you can go uh, you know, you know that it's going to be you're, worth more in the future or something than other people do. And you're totally going to get yelled at. Like you're totally going to have people yell at you. You're totally going to have people respond with just rude remarks. I mean, I get these. The skip tracing is the big thing now. Like people yeah. calling you or texting you and asking if you like they find your number and then they text you. I get those texts all the time. Like, hey, we saw you have a property here. Are you interested in selling? And my response is. I'll sell it to you for $900,000 for like a duplex that's worth like $200,000. And they're, and every response is the same canned one. It says like, we suggest you consult a realtor to consider listing your property on the multiple <laughs> listing service. And I'm like, yeah, I know. But if they would send me like a thought out letter, I would at least call them back. But since it's just spam, I don't respond seriously. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I, yeah, I guess to, to kind of continue this, it's like, we only have two properties and we get these all the time and they're garbage. So I can only <laughs> imagine, you know, you who has a much larger kind of property position was, it's like, ugh. 
So, uh, yeah. Yep. So to recap, know your customer, Sales 101. Don't be a secret agent. Don't be a secret investor. And, uh, you know, uh, think about what makes you different. You know, what's your competitive advantage? You know, what, what are you seeing different than other people aren't seeing? And then use that to enter into your, your first off-market deal. But remember, it's still a seller's market here in Pittsburgh. Anyway, uh, awesome. Anything I forgot there? Nah, perfect. All right. Wow. An A++. I'll take it. All right. Well, for <laughs> our last one, we'll jump into the mailbag. So we have someone who's writing in, uh, HCD, and he says, A friend of mine is moving out of his apartment, and I am taking his spot. I'll be living there with other roommates. My monthly salary is about 4x my portion of the rent and I decided to check my credit score, and it's low. I made on-time payments, etc., etc. The landlord is giving me issues about my credit score. What can I say to them uh, to make them, uh, I guess, more accepting of my application? <laughs> so that's Well, a little I'm not going to train tenants. <laughs> a little bit of a <laughs> however, flop, yeah. However, I'll take this from the other side, and then whoever is reaching out about this can maybe present themselves in such a way that resonates with this. So if your income is sufficient, but your credit score is bad, number one, you want to look at your on-time payments and stuff. I think they said that their history of on-time payments is good. It's just their score is low. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So I would tell the landlord ahead of time, like, hey, my assumption is that their credit score is low because they're fresh out of college or haven't really been building credit over time or something. Usually that's the case because... Normally, the only way somebody's credit score is total trash is if they don't pay their bills or they go into collections or whatever. So as long as you've been paying your bills, your credit is probably bad just because you haven't had credit that long. So when I look at tenants like this, I usually just will do double deposit or um, first and months rent like upfront if you can. Some areas allow that, some don't. Um, you have to make sure that you know what your area allows. Um, we will, we'll check their credit report versus just their credit score. And that's what we do actually. Anyway, we, we don't look at just the raw score. We look at their whole report for ourselves. And what I'm looking for is a no late payments. So this person would pass my criteria most likely because I don't really care what their score is. I'm just looking at, do you pay your bills? That's what's important. Um, but in, this particular scenario, the double deposit would probably be the best thing to do or a cosigner or something like that. Um, a lot of people, when they have this situation, like I said, they're right out of school or something like that. So then a lot of times they can find a parent to co-sign with them. Additionally, if you have roommates who have strong credit scores, that person kind of serves as like a co-signer of themselves on there to most landlords. Yeah. Um, so that's really what, what we're doing. Um, also look at the recency of like the credit issue. I mean, if somebody has been on time for six years, but they had really bad payments after like before that, or just they've been on time for the past significant window of time, I'm not usually going to hold that against them. It's just if it's recent. So, um, and bad credits, like subjective yeah. sort of agreed on that. I mean, I don't, I don't know what their score is. Like their score could be 630, 640. And in that case, their score is not horrible. It's just average. But if your score is like below 600, that's when we start to get like, okay, you need double deposit. You need um, 
strong cosine or something like that so yeah i don't really have much to add to that i agree like pay more up front you know bring your pay stubs uh if you have like proof of promotions at work that's always encouraging uh yeah and on the on the tenant side i said i wouldn't help the tenants but i will sort of when you go to apply you need to tell the landlord this before you apply it always looks better when the tenant says like, hey, when you run my credit, you're going to see this, but this is what I've been doing about it. Here's a letter from the credit bureau. Here's whatever um, shows you that this is paid, whatever you had to document it. Um, but if you tell the tenant up front or the landlord up front, it's going to go over a lot better than if they find out about it for the first time when they pull your credit. So, yeah. Agreed. In general, a tenant that looks proactive and like isn't complaining or like making excuses, but like is trying to, you know, provide supportive evidence. Uh, I guess what I'm saying is the tone of how you communicate it is also important. You know, if you're like, oh, this happened, like wasn't my fault. That's like, yep, exactly. Yeah. That's it. I always say I don't want tenants with stories. Yeah. And like, That's a good, just tell me yeah. the nuts and bolts. I don't want your whole story. I don't want to know how you hurt your leg and your dog couldn't get to the vet. And because you couldn't get the dog to the vet, you couldn't go to the <laughs> bank to get your check to pay your credit card. And if you would, if you just wouldn't hurt your leg and taking your dog to the vet, then you'd be able to pay your credit card. And you can't set it up on auto pay because you had a bad checking account this one time, but you totally don't overdraw your account anymore. It was just because your mom was sick. Like, I don't, uh, <laughs> I don't know. Just clear cut answer. And you look a lot better yeah. than if you give the gigantic long explanation that everyone that's a red flag tenant gives. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's a hundred percent agreed. Like, uh, man, such a red flag whenever you're telling me about like your mother's health history or something. And it's not because we don't care and we're like insensitive mean people. It's just like, you know, we're not friends, right? Like I have a responsibility to maintain the property and make it, you know, enjoyable to live there. And you have a responsibility to like be a good tenant, you know, be respectful, pay on time. And like, you know, I'm not going to tell you about my mother, <laughs> so you know. It doesn't go the other way. So, anyway. All right. Uh, I don't know. I don't think there's a recap on that one, I think. No, not really. Just... just double deposit, cosigner. Those are the basic things. Yeah. Double deposit, cosigner, get a clear-cut explanation. That's how you do it as a landlord, and that's the stuff you should be prepared to offer if you're a tenant. Yeah, and the more story, the worse the tenant. Pretty much. Man, that's a super good one. That's going to be the name of this podcast episode for sure. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, let's wrap it up and we'll roll into uh, something that you learned this week. Indeed. Indeed. Do you want me to go first? You're on the wrap up. Or, okay. Never mind. We wrapped it up. Each question. We don't need to do that. Yeah. I'm not going to um, do a triple wrap up here. Maximum, maximum preparation. Uh, something I learned this week. I learned that similar to the tenant thing, you always should be presenting like, a organized persona, even if you're not organized. Um, not that you should lie about anything, but for instance, I had a deal and it's been taking me like two weeks. Somebody's, somebody's trying to put an offer in on a property that I have listed mm -hmm. and it's been two weeks and, the, and their agent keeps telling me like, it's just so hard to get information from this person. I'm sorry. And I'm like, hmm. 
understood. However, that's probably not the best thing you should be telling me. Also, it's your job. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, no, I don't blame the agent because, like, it is sometimes there. You there are some people who just don't get you everything that you ask for, and that's not the agent's fault. But at the same time, you you can say that kind of thing without making it sound so bad. You can say like, "Sorry, there's a delay right now. They've been preoccupied with other things. I'm working on it. However, they've taken time to get their whatever they need to get together, and I will have it to you as soon as I have it. Sorry for the delay." Rather than like, these people are always so hard to get information from, because if somebody says like they're always so hard to get information from, that makes me feel like if my customer accepts that person's offer it's going to be a total headache so then i am going to pound this person for more earnest money whereas originally i would probably just say whatever one percent deposit that's cool but in this case i'm going to have to say like i need you to submit like four percent deposit because if it's hard for you to get information just to submit an offer how smooth do you think that transaction is going to go how smoothly not at all, not at all. Yeah. so no matter what you're doing, I would say present yourself as organized and like thorough and have everything that you could possibly have together. I know that's always not possible, but I remember the last one of the last deals that we bought when I was talking to the seller, I told them this is off market. I said, look, I know that you can get more if you list it, but here's my bank statement that shows that I have the money to close. Here's all the reviews of how easy I am to work with from other people. I am not going to get an inspection. I'm not going to do anything. When we sign the dotted line on the dotted line, you know that this is a done deal. And I presented organization and professionalism, and that allowed me to get the property under market. Mm -hmm. If you sound like you're going to be a pain to deal with, they aren't going to want to negotiate with you. You get uh, you get PETA penalty, which is pain in the ass penalty. Yeah, I got that one. Uh, yeah, so... <laughs> Yeah, that's a. That's what I. I wouldn't say I learned that this week, but it was just reiterated to me this week. Yeah, I feel like all these are like I was reminded of this lately. Yeah, that's yeah. that's a really good one. I, uh, to piggyback on that, I actually am starting to develop a thing where I don't say sorry. Like I'll say apologies instead, but I think you you can start off saying sorry too much, and it immediately puts you in like a position of disadvantage in a negotiation or a relationship. So, sorry is overused. Uh, and not really a heartfelt thing. And if you make it heartfelt, I think that's actually a good way to like enter into those oddities. Uh, yeah, De yeah, that's true. Depends, I guess, what you're doing. But I've never been one to really say sorry that much. I know that's probably not the best trait. But I've always I found that like apologizing or having a problem, it's always worked out better for me when I say I understand that you're frustrated. Yeah. That would be a much better and way. That, like, just say, I understand that you're feeling this way because I did this. This is what I'm doing to try to work on it. Sorry that, sorry, I use sorry. But, like, I understand is usually a more successful first lead-in. Because sorry sometimes, I've just found this with tenants mostly. Exactly. If I say sorry about that, then it makes it seem like you did something wrong. Exactly. And it's like, I didn't do anything wrong. I it's just a crappy situation for all of us. It sucks that we all have to deal with this. Yeah. I understand you're frustrated, but I'm doing the best I can. Yeah. 
Also, like, there's like three sorries in the chamber, and after your third sorry, sorry, yeah, after your third sorry, it's like, all right, whatever, I'm done with you. Um, Bless. for me, boy, I don't know. I think I've used this one recently, but you know, uh, we had the plumber come through the house again, so we've had the plumber in this house like four times. And I think my new, like, the new thing I would learn is, like, I'm going to, whenever we buy a place, I'm just going to have them come over and, like, we're going to turn all the valves, replace all the shutoffs that aren't shutting off, and just, like, do it in one go. Because we're basically paying, like, a visitation fee, you know? Like, the valves and the actual work isn't very hard. It's, like, mostly the expense of the visit. So that would be, like, you know, uh, more broadly, I feel like we're, like, cutting corners occasionally here, and we're trying to save, you know, whatever. 200 400 here and there and similar to your story with like a leaking valve and using a handyman instead of a plumber it's like you know just lay out the extra like 600 to a thousand dollars to do the job right and get the stuff you need done because if the job is so tight that you can't afford 600 or a thousand bucks like what are you really doing unless you're you know if you're like really good at plumbing or whatever but i mean we had to install a new toilet flange with oakum or something like that there's no way i was going to do that so just get the plumber in you've never installed a toilet flange uh not a cast iron one that had to be like welded on with uh it's called oakum Ah. oakum or something like that so i don't know they do sell um this probably would not have worked in your case or the plumber would have just done it but if you ever want a do-it-yourself thing even with the cast iron ones, you can you can a lot of times try a repair flange. Um, yeah, see, this runs very counter to what I was my beliefs now, where it's like I know I'm just gonna pay the money, get it done right, especially with shit water. It's like we're just gonna get it done right and never think about it again. <laughs> yeah, we um we definitely had something happen like that though, and we had to. It took like four hours to find a repair flange that worked. Wow. Like we were back and forth from the store. The next day, we had to go to a plumbing supply store. Mm-hmm. My dad is good with that kind of stuff, so I had somebody that knew what they were doing with me. Yeah, that helps But it was just, like, horrible. I, I would have saved so much money and, and time by just hiring the plumber. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, I forget what I was going to say. Your cats distracted me. <laughs> you can hear it? Uh, yeah. Yeah, there it is. They sound very cute, though, so it's all good. I hate it when the door's closed and the one um the one has a vet appointment tomorrow. Fifteen hundred dollars to pull a tooth Whoa. or two teeth. And it can't eat past ten o'clock. So now they are like very upset because the food bowls are not full. Yeah, I bet. Wow. Yeah, well, so. I don't know what to say about that. Good luck. That's insane. That's why you save money. Yeah. So whatever. Yes. But that's that. Well so. anyway let's send them off um now they know all about my cat so uh where can they call us to ask us questions uh boy i don't have that number memorized hold on one second it is 412-212-8366 wow, i did the jingle you're good man when john memorizes the number i'll stop doing the jingle all right we also have it in the outro that's already recorded so it'll hit there too nice very professional all preparation yeah but i learned that you should do stuff like handwritten you know very uh you know manual manual yeah, yeah so, so there you yeah. go there's the manual all right. dial in you jags all right, all right. Yeah. well we'll catch you guys next time see you tony adios Peace. that's it for this week's episode check us out on instagram at vfreere 
on the web at www.befreere.com and give us a call with your name, where you're calling from, and what your question is. 412-212-8366. Catch you next time.